I have literally stopped going to Google for a lot of my searches and I go to chat GPT and it's not, it's not even the generative part. It's the contextualizing of the knowledge that exists across the internet. You know, what's, what's so funny is I get, uh, you know, we're in the services space, my, my business, and we do a lot of partnerships with platform companies and SaaS companies. So I'll get this all the time. They'll say, hey, uh, we use this tool, uh, Crossbeam. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, uh, you know, to like match up our CRMs. And I'm always like, yeah, you know, I think I've, yeah, I've heard of Crossbeam before. That's so fun. I, I tell you what, I've been doing this B2B software thing for 15 years or so, and that is a very, very unique experience of Crossbeam, uh, just because it behaves in a lot of ways like a consumer app, right? There's a there's a free tier of the product. There's a whole virality thing where if you use it, you want your partners to use it. And that leads to this really cool network graph getting constructed. Um, and it's kind of funny, like I can go to tech conferences and wear a Crossbeam shirt and you know, get pulled to the side uh, by every other person that walks by because uh, it's just so incredibly widely adopted at this point. And at my past companies, it was much more, you know, if we can get 200 enterprise customers in the life of the company, we've built something substantial. Um, you know, the price points were really different, but yeah, Crossbeam, we're at over 12,000 companies on the platform now. And uh, it's a very different sphere of awareness that exists for the product. And to be honest, it's a lot more fun uh, to doing it that way. When you started building it, I remember you told me about it before you even launched uh, the business. I think we were at a PSL event or something. Yeah. Uh, so it was like the first month or two. Uh, it was something different back then, right? Like you pivoted into what it is now, I think. Well, I think so. I had this moment where I was, I had sold um, RJ Metrics, my original company. We were in the process of selling Stitch Data, which was my second company. And it was a little bit of this moment where, I told myself I'm going to like take a breather and, you know, maybe have a little uh, sabbatical, figure out what I want to do with my life. And like, um, I actually moved to LA for a month. It was February, 2018, honestly, just to escape the cold of the Northeast uh, for a little stretch. And you know, kind of spent a month on the beach and then packed up my bags and came home and said, like, I got another company I got to start. Uh, <laughs> this is like, I'm, I'm not uh, Funny how that works. not well suited to uh, uh, to the R&R for too long. And yeah, I had a I had this Evernote file, which I guess these days it would be a Notion document. But I had this Evernote file that had like 50 startup ideas in it that I'd accumulated over the you know decade or so of, of building RJ and Stitch. And um uh, the top two or three all seemed really compelling to me. And I was kind of going around town in the spring of 2018, which is probably when, you know, I got to you, um, really just pitching people on a random pick it out of the hat. I'm going to pitch somebody on, you know, idea number one, idea number two, idea number three, really just looking for a signal of product market fit, right? Like how many of those casual conversations turned into, uh, a next conversation or a next idea. Um, and there was, a this thing at the time was codenamed Shared Secrets. Uh, and, you know, the name Crossbeam didn't show up uh, until many, many months later. But th th there was always this core of the idea of like, what sits at the center of the Venn diagram in between every single data silo that exists out there? And, and what if you could unearth that data layer? And I think that that core vision has always been consistent. But my my journey to picking this idea was a bit of a winding road. That's cool. Well, uh 
Obviously, I think the Philly listeners all know who you are at this point. You've had, uh, you know, three companies at this stage. But for the non-Philly people that might not know, uh, I'd love for you to kind of give a, a background. And then uh, after that, you know, there's incredible stuff happening in the data space. I'd love to get your opinion on that. Uh, we can start with just kind of like your background, though. Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of the story. So um, I was always uh, very much a computer nerd growing up. I went to school for engineering, uh, actually this really weird major, which was called uh, operations research and financial engineering. It's a mouthful of a, of a degree <laughs> title, but it kind of boils down to this mix of computer science and finance, economics and uh, and statistics. Um, so, you know, did Where'd a lot you of- go for that? Uh, what's that? Where, where did you go to get that? Uh, I went to Princeton. Um, okay, cool. I grew up in South Jersey. Um, so uh, Princeton was, um, uh, you know, always kind of, it was about an hour drive up from from where I grew up and was always kind of the, the dream school. Uh, and it was very, very fortunate to, to make it in there. And um, yeah, this kind of interesting bespoke major, which has since become the most popular major in the entire Princeton Engineering School. It's um, smart though. I mean, it's uh, it's the skill plus the uh, vertical focus or the application of the skill. That's really true. It's it's very um, it's it is anything but academic in nature. Um, and you get to learn uh, you know economics from these great economists, and you get to learn computer science from these great computer scientists. But ultimately, the the practitioners that come out of that program usually end up going somewhere and building something. Uh, and that was always what was really appealing to me. And there wasn't an entrepreneurship major, right? There wasn't a, a startups or venture capital major uh, there. This was the closest thing to it. Uh, and it ended up being a really good fit um, for, for what I ended up doing. Um, right out of the gate, out of college, I went uh, to New York and worked at a venture capital firm called Insight Partners. Um, Insight has since become like this powerhouse venture fund that I think they're currently investing out of a $20 billion fund or something. Um, at the time, the firm was only about 40 people. Uh, and I was the junior most person on that team. My job was basically to make cold calls into startups, try to get the CEO on the phone and try to find out how much revenue they had and, and how fast they were growing. Um, and if it was, you know, a scale of company that fit into the wheelhouse of the Insight Investment Thesis, I would kind of like, uh, you know, have a weekly pipeline meeting and hand it off to the partner that I work for to to see if they could go, you know, turn it into a deal. Um, it's kind of like the the inverse of the traditional venture capital model you'd think of, right? You think of a VC and they've got startups lined up around the block, like Shark Tank style, bringing the business plans and ideas, hoping to get capital. At Insight, we were trying to give money to the companies that didn't want it or didn't need it, right? So it kind of, it made Insight a very, very successful firm because it got very smart and disciplined and was very savvy about the bets that it picked and how it put its money to work. But a side effect of that is that you kind of have to actually do demand generation. And for people familiar with, you know, how a software company might work, my job was basically the equivalent of being an SDR, right? Like an outbound sales rep uh, who was drumming up new leads and new business for the, the people actually closing the deal. So um, that was actually a really important experience for me, not just to learn about the venture capital industry and how it works, um, and frankly, the, the startup and technology industry and some of those dynamics, but also just to get told no like 5,000 times a year, right? Like I was I was supposed to make 100 calls a week. And, uh, you know, if you do one deal a year in, in that field, you're a total rock star. So that means ultimately 4,999 of the calls that you make are going to result in some kind of disappointment. And it's almost like 
for kind of a nerdy engineer used to sitting in a basement writing code, it was this interesting form of exposure therapy to just uh, persistence, uh, you know, finding the joy and the fun in something that uh, ultimately is really challenging. There's uh, something to it. Uh, my my first, uh, you know, job was uh, door to door Fios sales. Oh, there you go, man. I had a gun pulled on me uh, one time. <laughs> That is way more of a badge of honor than uh, trying to sell money, uh, which is a decidedly <laughs> easier job, despite the way I describe it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really, I couldn't agree more, right? Like there's something to um, just your, also just your understanding of humans and human nature, right? Like having a sales job in whatever form it takes, I think is something that's is a bit eye-opening and kind of preps you for what's next. Um, uh, but yeah, on the you know, that, so that was 2006, I graduated college. So I was at Insight for 2006, 2007 into early 08. And I uh, always wanted to start a company. That was part of why I went the venture route to begin with. And uh, while working at Insight, I just realized that many of the companies, even the most interesting ones uh, and the smartest, most savvy ones Insight was working with, were um, kind of working um, in a suboptimal way when it came to using data to run their business, right? You'd have like an e-commerce company that has millions in revenue and millions of paying customers, but uh, you know isn't necessarily looking at things like customer lifetime value or cohort analysis or like deeply understanding who their most valuable customers are and where they come from and how to get more of them. Uh, a lot of these businesses had just a, such exceptional product market fit in a particular area that they didn't necessarily need all these data optimizations to like be the thing that drove their business. Um, but when we applied those data optimizations, it was this amazing force multiplier, right? To allow for greater scale and greater predictability and cost controls and everything else. So um, I had this computer science background and, you know, I was fortunate enough to work on a few deals where uh, I was able to apply that data knowledge to just help these companies understand the mechanics of their growth a little bit better. And that, after doing it a few times, I realized that 80, 90% of what I was doing was very repetitive. It was like, let me get the data from point A to point B. Let me structure that data in such a way that it can be analyzed. Let me load it into a SQL database. Let me write the queries onto that SQL database to get the consolidated data out. Let me put that in a spreadsheet so that I can visualize it. Let me put the visuals into a PowerPoint deck so we can tell a data story around it. And let me distribute it to stakeholders. If you think about that whole process, all that is really just like the scaffolding around analysis, right? The little piece in there, it was like, okay, let's uh, write that SQL query so that we can do the analysis. Maybe that requires some like technical skill. The rest of it was just data pipelines and warehouses and visualization platforms and data organization and, and business logic and data modeling, which are, are repeatable, right? But there, there didn't appear to be a software product out there that was doing that in kind of a modern software as a service cloud delivered way. And now this is 2008, SaaS wasn't even a thing. We used to call these things ASPs, uh, application service providers, which was like uh, any software that was kind of hosted in the web browser. And um, I- It became was really like, uh, what was it like UTAB or something back then or uh, Crystal Reports? Uh... Yeah, yeah. So like there's all, there's a whole like legacy industry around business intelligence, right? Like MicroStrategy is one of those companies. And um, yeah, there's a whole, you know, SAS back in the day. Uh, it's so like, they've been around so long that even I am poor at like reciting who they are because uh, they, they predated even like the era of, of my companies by a while. But yeah, it's been like the, the, the art of doing data work is not new. I think the delivery model 
opportunity was new, which was what if you could actually uh, facilitate doing all this work uh, through the cloud, right? And, and do it fully internet so that it doesn't need to be, historically, you'd have a local giant database server that's that's storing all this stuff, right? And you'd have, uh, it's, it'd be very, very uh, expensive from like an actual CapEx standpoint. Um, and you'd have to be really, uh, you know, you, you enter a query and go home at night and come back the next morning and hope that the answer showed up. Um, the, the pace of advancements from a computational standpoint and from a cheapness of storage and data portability standpoint, you know, this was an era where AWS was really starting to take hold and, um, this cloud delivery model was, was really, really appealing. So, um, well, speaking well, about that, uh, you know, I was talking with Mike Krupit about this. I, you probably know Mike. Yeah, uh, I so he was CD now and they invested, I don't know what it was, but it was like either high eight or low nine figures in building a website. Oh, so true. So incredibly true. Yeah. Josh Koppelman uh, also does a really good kind of stump speech on this, which is like, you know, the difference between when Google was founded and what founders go through today, just in terms of the capital requirements for getting from zero to one are uh, so many orders of magnitude difference. Uh, and that just means that the rate at which new companies, new ideas can be experimented with is uh, is wildly changed, um, which is great for humanity and great for progress. And, um, you know, there's still a, a bit of a, you know, capital Darwinism effect that happens, but there's just more shots on goal. So you get more great companies and more good ideas see the light of day. It's it's really cool. Um, but yeah, that, um, you know, this was all this era, uh, you know, in, in mid-08, call it at Insight, enough pattern recognition kind of kicked in around like, hey, there was an opportunity set here and there's a lot of companies that could benefit from it. Uh, I teamed up with one of my colleagues there, a guy by the name of Jake Stein, uh, and he and I uh, quit Insight uh, in September of 2008 and decided to start a company to build like basically a cloud-delivered business intelligence platform, kind of a you know among the first of its kind. Um, I quit my job on a Friday. On Saturday, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Uh, and the entire financial economy like went into ruin. Every venture capital dollar on the market dried up and went away. So um, that was actually part of what brought me back to the Philly area because, um, you know, Jake and I looked at our bank accounts and said, hey, we can survive for six weeks in New York City or six months in uh, in Philly. Um, and, you know, headed back to uh, what was my hometown. And it, Jake had gone to Penn, so he knew the city well. And we started building this company called RJ Metrics, which was really designed to be a piece of software that runs in the cloud where companies could connect their uh, their databases, which contain information about their customers and how they behave and what they do. And then we absorb that data, we help them analyze it, and we give them these beautiful charts and dashboards that automatically update that they can actually view in a web browser. Um, and uh, we bootstrapped that business. We spent the first three years really just manually uh, you know, getting to our first million in revenue and our first dozen employees and um, didn't raise a penny of, of outside capital. Uh, and it really, it was great to go through an era where those guardrails existed, partly because like we kind of needed the education. And if we had access to unlimited capital, I'm sure we would have wasted it. Um, but also because it forced us to focus uh, and, you know, really hone in on where the value was and listen to customers. And we learned a lot of great lessons that, um, you kind of have to, in my view, like learn on the job in startup land. And we did it in a way, it didn't feel like it at the time that it was low risk because, uh, you know, we were trying to, uh, trying to pay our rent. Right. But, um, in the grand scheme of things was ultimately like a really, really great environment to get that, that experience. 
Um, and then, you know, by 2011 and 2012, the venture markets started waking up again. And we had built this pretty cool business that was growing at a good clip. And, you know, between 20, 2013, call it, and 2015, you know, we raised like 30 million bucks in venture capital across the Didn't, seed uh, Wasn't there a seed round though? Gabe Weinberg did a seed yeah, round? Yeah, yeah. So that was um, that was in 2012. So we we did a seed round, um, yeah, in, 20, in late 2012. Um, it was actually, so Gabe Weinberg wrote a check-in. There's a, a bunch of other like cool folks in the Philly area. I don't know whose permission I have to name drop, but uh, it sounds like Gabe mentioned it. So I'm in the clear there. Uh, he's always been a great uh, mentor and, and friend. Um, and uh, a bunch of folks from uh, our client base actually wrote a, a lot of checks in there. So like the the founders of Bonobos, which was a big client of ours, the founder of fab.com, which was a super hot e-commerce company at the time, wrote a big check-in. Um, you know, there were folks from a bunch of different uh, kind of lesser known brands uh, that uh, that contributed, but it was really cool to kind of assemble the uh assemble the customer base to get those initial dollars in the door and then when we raised the series a it was trinity ventures led it it was traditional like sand hill road institutional venture capital um and same with our series b it was august august capital did it in in 2015 um and we had this really interesting thing happen right the business continued to like grow explosively on the on the revenue side but the competition heated up incredibly not just in the form of traditional competitors, like somebody that does exactly what we do, but there was kind of this disruptive force that showed up, um, which to avoid getting super wonky about it, basically was just like a different way to do analytics, right? It's these, these they called them, uh, uh, you know, cloud-based data warehouses. Amazon Redshift was the first one to come out, but it was just like a better way to store and organize data for analytics uh, based in the cloud. And we were not built on that technology. So when that technology came out, it was kind of a, uh, it kind of broke the entire economy around business analytics and forced everybody to start using this new stuff. And we were slow to adapt to that. And in the time it took us to migrate the way our platform worked into the new thing, a bunch of new startups started clean that were just built on the new thing to begin with and and, and natively, right? Or or even more effective than that, were part of a, an ecosystem where they just sat on top of these cloud data warehouses and didn't even worry about doing the data storage and pipeline stuff. Um, and this is companies like Looker, right? Which um, ended up becoming a massively successful outcome. Uh, uh, they were backed by first round capital. Uh, you know, I think they sold for $2.6 billion to Google. Um, you know, I think they just rebranded Data Studio as Looker. Um, yes, absolutely. They just rebranded Google Data Studio as Looker. Yeah, so that's kind of that that fold in there. Um, but anyway, the um, yeah, so we were going head to head with these companies that are kind of like, you know, we were... Um, uh, we were a horse and buggy going up against the the automobile. And by the time we built our own car, uh, there was a Lamborghini out there, right? And um, the we were able, fortunately, to have a really good outcome for RJ Metrics because we had a massive client base in the e-commerce space. So a lot of online stores were using us. And um, in 2016, uh, despite all these competitive pressures and growth slowing a bit, um, a company called Magento, which is one of the largest e-commerce platforms, uh, acquired us, uh, and we were kind of folded into Magento, which very promptly after that was acquired by Adobe. So the RJ Metrics business is now like the Adobe Commerce Cloud business intelligence feature, right? Uh, it's like a lot of a lot of adjectives, but the product lives on and, and has a lot of customers. And some of our original team now works for Adobe and is still over in that that world. Um, Magento's but, had a wild run. They were like, you know, 
private, then owned by eBay, and then spun out, and then acquired, you know, acquired by Adobe. I think there might be a couple stories in the saga I missed there, oh, probably. <laughs> so, so many great stories. That's the that's the you know the podcast interview you ought to you ought to track down because it's it's kind of a Philly story too because um, the the part of the journey where they were owned by eBay. It was really eBay Enterprise, which was originally GSI Commerce, which was Michael Rubin's original company. Rubin now, like, you know, who owns Fanatics and is a co-owner of the 76ers and, you know, because iconic Philly uh, Philly guy. Um, so Magento kind of touched, you know, that that universe as well. And there were some people from that squad in Philly because of that. So it was a really interesting story. But yeah, they. I mean, they were an open source platform founded in Los Angeles originally, um, and have gone through so many machinations. Um, but now part of uh, part of Adobe and, and doing well in there. Yeah, we've um, been in the uh, my firm's been in the Magento ecosystem for probably cool. six or eight years. I don't know. We've, we've been uh, you know doing implementations there. It's a it's a wild product, and it's uh, interesting uh, what's going to change with it. Uh, you know, what's already started to change with the Adobe acquisition. Oh yeah, so true. And and this is also kind of a, like maybe good segue, right? I can start to fold in part of where Crossbeam, the idea even came from, because when we got acquired uh, by Magento, I had never worked for a company with more than like 40 employees, right? I came out of college, I worked at this venture firm with 40 people, and then I started my own company and it grew to, I don't know, 120 people or so before we got acquired. And so my company was the biggest company I'd ever been at. And then I got dropped into this uh true enterprise, right? An actual enterprise software company. They had just been part of eBay and they had spun out of eBay. They were private equity owned. They were gearing up to be acquired by an even bigger parent publicly traded software company. I mean, this was like, I got to kind of see what it looks like to see scale. Uh, and what was amazing to me was I looked around and uh, you know, they had a tech partner ecosystem with over 500 other applications that had built, you know, add-ons or plugins or integrations into the Magento platform. So huge tech partner ecosystem. Then uh, you pop your head up even more and you say, there's over 10,000 global system integrator and agency partners, right? That's that's you guys, right? Like that's the, uh, anybody who's implementing this stuff is really a last mile part of the delivery and bringing this to market and helping sell it and, um, you know, helping service it. Um, and there's like an entire economy built around the, you know, the deployment and servicing um, and uh, implementation of this Magento platform. And yet, um, I'm a data guy. And I started asking questions like, well, you know, you look in these, these ecosystems of partners, and how do you answer questions like, uh, hey, uh, hey, tech partner, how many customers do we have in common? And who are they? Or, uh, you know, how many um, are, are your sales reps currently trying to sell to any of the same companies that our sales reps are trying to sell to in-house? Like, how do we know we don't have some channel conflict where we're trying to we're selling against each other, but we're selling the same product and we don't even know it. Um, and the real answer, which is not specific to Magento at all, it's a universal problem is we just don't know how to answer those questions because um, it's simple math, right? Like answering those questions requires drawing a Venn diagram between uh, you know, my data set and my partner's data set. But uh, the only way to draw a Venn diagram is if you have all of the data from both of the circles. And that means I need to tell you who all of my customers are, or I need to tell you every single, uh, you know, sales prospect that's in my sales pipeline, if we want to find just the sliver uh, that overlaps in the middle. And 
you get into this prisoner's dilemma style, like data standoff when you try to do that between companies because neither side wants to overshare. Um, not to mention all the technical hurdles of like, you know, I use HubSpot and you use Salesforce and we have another partner that keeps everything in a Google sheet, right? Like how do we, how do we even make that data all reconcile? But um, I came to this realization that like, even at big, big scale, right? There is no solve for this problem. You can't like pay Salesforce a million dollars for some special module that just unlocks like cross company data comparison. It just isn't a solved problem. But locked up. It's weird that it's Salesforce hasn't implemented that. It seems like such an obvious way for them to add a, add a feature. Yeah. So the, the the thing that's remarkable there, and once you dig into it, it, it becomes less surprising, right? Is that Salesforce is not instrumented in a way that's conducive to doing that. Part of Salesforce's success is really the extreme amount of extensibility and flexibility and customizability that exists mm, in any given right, yeah. CRM, right? So like any given Salesforce instance is entirely its own beast and nothing about the way the underpinning technical architecture of that platform has been built, has been built in a way that anticipated actually comparing or combining data across those different instances, right? From the underlying like literal physical architecture to, um, you know, the way that customizability is, is built in and standards and templates and things like that just like don't exist for the most part. Um, it, it makes it so that the fact that two companies are on Salesforce is actually kind of irrelevant uh, to the to the the problem solving of trying to compare their data to one another. Um, and then you also get the Switzerland problem, right? Like Salesforce is big; they're they're the biggest, but there's plenty of companies out there using Microsoft Dynamics for CRM. There's you know HubSpot's hot on the tails in the SMB market. Um, there's an incredibly long tail of folks that have data in yeah, we're on you know, like drive. You know, yeah, exactly. Down. Yeah. Yeah. Like these verticalized CRMs or like, yeah, the modern, uh, modern SaaS CRMs, like the pipe drives or even like, you know, monday.com and Zoho and like all these, uh, Zendesk has a product called Zendesk cell. That's a, that's a CRM ish, uh, offering. So, um, you know, that the, the great, um, uh, the great spread of data across all these platforms makes it really hard too. Um, so, so I'm at Magento and I see, um, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about starting a new company or, or not, right. And just paying attention, you're always on the hunt for this like elusive product market fit. That's like the buzzword always. And I feel like what I had in that Magento moment was half of that equation. Like I had the market, which was look, let's not think about product and how to solve the problem for now, but let's just think about if a solution did exist, right? Like what could you do if you suddenly unearthed this data layer that had never been accessible before? That was all of the data that sits at the center of all the Venn diagrams between all the companies out there that collaborate and work together. Um, you know, if you could do that, the magnitude of this thing would be absolutely incredible because you, you'd basically build like a, a meta CRM, right? Uh, that sits uh, at a at a layer above any individual silo and almost allows you to transcend the knowledge that exists across not just your CRM, but the CRMs of all of your partners, um, but only the data that's relevant to your collaboration, right? Where it's about companies you already have a relationship with as well. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed to me that you could build almost, uh, again, right, an entire economy of like networked applications on top of that data layer, if only you could unearth it. Um, and that idea went into my Evernote file, right? It just kind of said like, hey, figure out, think about this problem, try to crack it. Um, and is that the <laughs> is that like the most uh, obvious, like just light bulb, you know, moment where it's like the matrix and you can control the world around you and see everything or? 
Well, yeah. Well, the problem is I didn't know how to solve it. Right. So like, yeah, I, this is tons of people come up to me for, for crossbeam, right? All, this happens all the time. I, people are like crossbeam. I like that company. You know, I had that idea back in 1997, <laughs> right? Or like I had this idea. I almost did this idea. And I always ask people like the idea that you had when you had it, like, tell me what, what made it occur to you. And every single story that I ever get back is a story where they had the, the market realization. No one ever has the product realization, right? Which I'll get to in a second. Uh, and the, like, this is in no way am I, uh, uh, you know, unique in observing that this problem existed. The amount of pain that has been felt by the the collective world of people in collaboration or partnership-based jobs because of this problem is massive. Um, and if anything, I was just like kind of, uh, you know, ignorant and late to the game um, in realizing that the problem was there. Um, but it was so unsolved that the idea actually continued to live in that Evernote file. And I went and started another company, completely different company with my same co-founder, Jake Stein from RJ Metrics. He and I, um, there was a piece of technology that we built at RJ Metrics that we actually were able to spin out um, uh, as part of the Magento deal and retain ownership of. And it was this super nerdy data infrastructure thing um, called Stitch uh, or Stitch Data. And the idea was it's this technology that allows you to build data pipelines that pull data out of SaaS APIs and drops it into these data warehouses that kind of change the world. We had built a bunch of this as part of the RJ product, but Magento didn't need it because they only needed Magento data and our data pipeline tech could pull from like 70 sources. So we were able to get them to let us spin that out. And we started basically this data infrastructure company um, in 2016 uh, when we sold uh, when we sold RJ. And, um, you know, while I was in-house at Magento, uh, I was also exec chair over at Stitch, which Jake was running. And we kind of built this thing up and uh, it worked really well. In in two years, Stitch got as large uh, as RJ Metrics did from a revenue perspective. And it, you know, it took RJ eight or nine years. Um, and this is where in building Stitch, the, the product side of the Crossbeam vision came to light because... The whole Stitch business was predicated on the API economy, which is, uh, you know, to to explain more uh, more simply, is just the idea that software products now allow you to take your data out, uh, right, and do it in a programmatic way and um, systematically extract all the information that exists inside of, you know, your CRM instance or customer database, your data warehouse, your backend operational database. There are these great ways that you can write code that just like gets that data out of there in a predictable, structured way uh, that's reliable. Stitch could have never existed if that didn't exist. Honestly, 10 years ago, APIs were a joke and were unreliable and mostly didn't exist. But five years ago, they were getting pretty good. And three, four years ago, uh, you know, when this time frame was happening, it had gotten to the point like, wow, these things are like real, uh, reliable um, things that are, you know, companies are offering up like service level agreements to guarantee they never go down, right? And they have great documentation and they're super secure. And you can build products on top of this whole API economy. And this is the light bulb moment, right? Which was to say, we now have the ability to get data out of these platforms in a structured, systematic way. And we've learned at Stitch how to do this at scale for a very diverse variety of data sources, but standardize them in a way that you can like drop them into a single database. And uh, at Stitch, we were doing it in silos, right? Like any one company is a customer and we get their data into their warehouse. But the aha moment was, hey, what if you built something that kind of use all that same technology with a different goal? 
And that goal would be to build something that actually is intended to combine the data from multiple businesses and served almost more like an escrow service for data. So it could be this secure, independent, third-party platform that sits in between companies who want to collaborate with each other and ultimately does all the hard stuff, right? It's in charge of sucking the data out of all the various CRMs and data sources where it lives for any given company. It transforms and standardizes that data into a universal data model so that you can actually compare it from company to company. Even if you have two very different Salesforce implementations or I'm using Salesforce and you're using HubSpot or whatever, um, it takes care of all the messy identity resolution stuff where like if I'm selling to Delta faucets and you're selling to Delta Airlines, it can figure out that it's not the same company and doesn't give you a, a false positive match. Uh, but then more important than any of that, it's got this trust and security layer that sits over top of the whole thing that allows anybody who's using it to have absolute control over the ownership of their own data and who can see what, when, under what circumstances. Uh, and that despite it, allowing for data to flow across company lines, ultimately allow any given company's rules around privacy and compliance and data ownership and governance to remain intact and be absolutely auditable and controllable. And they can flip the switches and turn the dials in such a way that it, it meets with their compliance requirements. Um, and I mean, just simply from like, from my end, the way that the way that we've used it is that our partner will say, hey, we're going to upload our CRM, you upload your CRM, and then we come back, it's like, all right, these nine accounts, you're both prospecting. So all right, let's go, you know, let's get the sales reps on the call, you know, what are the strategies? What are you outbounding with? You know, what can we outbound with? And then it just helps us kind of sync up and and get a you know get a, a deal done better. So incredibly true. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself and didn't say it better myself. So I'm glad you gave that example, right? That's <laughs> that if you go way back to like the first principles of what I observed at Magento, it's exactly that thing, right? It's like, hey, are my sales reps currently selling to any of the same companies as your sales reps? Now you can answer that and you can turn this dial and get an answer out of out of Crossbeam that depending on how you turn the dial, it could say, yes, they are, and there's nine of them, but we're not going to tell you who. Or it can say, yes, uh, you are, and there's nine of them, and here's the nine. Or it can say, yes, you are, and there's nine of them, and here's the expected deal value on either side, and here's the sales rep that owns the deal, and, uh, you know, um, the extent to which you... So every time we've used it, we've always yeah. just had it show us both who the nine are. We've never had yeah. those other things in play. I didn't even know those were features. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing um, how far you can go because if you think about some of the use cases here, companies are using this totally internally. Like if company A acquires company B and it's going to take them three years to merge their CRM systems, they'll use Crossbeam for three years to help their sales teams get aligned, right? So in that case, there's no data privacy or security concerns. It's all the same company with the same parent owner. It's really a uh, like this tactical issue of being able to cross-pollinate the knowledge of where there's overlapping customers or sales deals without having yet integrated your CRM systems, which can be a really hairy, long-reaching thing, right? Like we're the glue that holds integrations together, um, you know, uh, post-acquisition, but pre-integration completion. Um, there's also a lot of cases where you've got a partnership that goes really deep, like you have a joint venture or you have you know, this very, very uh, complex partnership agreement drawn up with a lot of very clear rules around, you know, collaboration and fair use. And it creates a comfort level that, you know, uh, allows companies to get much, much, much more uh, open and collaborative about how and where they, you know, uh, explore accounts together. And they might just open up the floodgates a little more. Um, and again, that kind of like 
our goal is not to decide necessarily what's appropriate. We're not the uh, the attorneys or the strategists for our customers. Our goal is to enable them to apply what's appropriate to their situation, right? And and do that in the within the grounds of what's what's right for for them. Uh, yeah, so yeah, really there's cool. a lot of a ton of flexibility there, and that's what's really allowed us to break into the enterprise market super well, right? So like I mentioned, there's twelve thousand companies on the platform. Um, among them are hundreds of companies that are that are publicly traded, right, on public markets around the globe. Um, you know, we've got some Fortune 50 companies in there. Uh, and when we first started this thing a couple of years ago, like the idea that we would ever get that was almost unfathomable because you start a company where part of the description is data sharing. And you think about that in a post-GDPR, post-CCPA world where, you know, uh, data security is paramount for everybody. Like, how will you ever get over these hurdles of, um, compliance teams and legal teams and security teams, like really scrutinizing every single application that touches data. And the answer is you be really, really secure uh, and provide an enormous amount of control and transparency to the people that use it and give them the power. Uh, and I think that that's been from, from day one in architecting the platform, that's been our intent and you know the way we deliver the product. And it's, it's why we really control the enterprise market in, in this entire category. That's awesome. Uh, so I want to move like we got, you know, 20 minutes or so left here. Yeah. I want to move into the future. So uh, there's like a huge, uh, you know, set of uh, innovations coming here in the data space, especially around ML and, you know, open AIs in the news every time oh, I yeah. open up my Google feed. Uh, I think we're like two algorithm tweaks away from the singularity probably at this point. <laughs> I'm a, I, You know what? Yeah, there's a lot of... Um... You know, these things go through hype cycles, right? And uh, it's certainly at peak hype cycle right now. Um, and I occasionally will think like, is this thing overhyped? And then I'll go use chat GPT. And I will say, oh, no, this is not overhyped. Like, I don't think it is. I think there's um, some good businesses that are going to come it, out of this. I, um, it, this is not exactly an original thought. Like a lot of people have, have, you know, talked about the implications for Google search, but I think it is so incredibly damning for the future of Google's traditional search business, um, uh, which by the way, is like the gateway to their entire uh, revenue and, and profitability model. Um, if they don't have a competitor, they might be like holding their, their ACE card kind of like, you know, waiting for all this to play out. So they know what they're dealing with and then what they, you know, release to combat it and, who knows what they've got under their sleeves? Very true. I, and that is a very real possibility. And I know they've been, um, you know, being a bit more aggressive of late in kind of showing their cards on what they've come up with. I don't know if you saw the, they have like a music generator that they showed a preview of a week or two ago, or like you can type in, just describe like, I want a uh, synthy beat that could be used in an action movie uh, with a male. Dude, the best, thing in the the best use case my wife sent me last night is a uh, AI generated fart machine. Yeah, that, you know, uh, uh, of all the things, you know, they say they thought that the AI would replace all the mathematicians uh, and the scientists and, you know, the last <laughs> the last living ones would be the artists. But uh, it's doing the exact opposite, right? The, the first things that AI is actually going after effectively is like creating incredible drawings and music and uh, poetry and the written word uh, and farts apparently, which is, is definitely an art form. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, uh, but yeah, I had a, um, uh, I have, I have literally stopped going to Google for a lot of my searches and I go to chat GPT and it's not, it's not even the generative part. It's the contextualizing of the knowledge that exists across the internet um, Dude, this will blow your mind. Maybe you've already done it, but I was writing a curl function the other day in PHP, and I go to Chat GPT and I say, "I want a curl function 
that does a put request to this uh, SendGrid uh, contact list endpoint. And this is like the JSON uh, data that I want to put in. And then it just like gave me the code. Yeah. I, uh, yes. Um, we had a hackathon a couple of uh, weeks ago where I had a project where I needed to write a bunch of script in Google Apps script which is like a, a JavaScript derivative, basically. I didn't even know that it existed before I was doing this hackathon project. So like, I'm sure it's somewhat, you know, popular and widely adopted, but it's not like a top five programming language, right? Like, I don't know what the corpus of, of script out there and Stack Overflow on the internet is for this language. And I go to ChatGPT and I'm like, hey, I need a function in Google Apps Script that like, you know, pulls data out of a Google sheet and runs it through this, uh, through a regular expression that'll filter out this stuff and then puts the result in that column and then uses that to draft an email that comes out, like describe this really complicated thing and like, boom. Um, and when I say like, I copied that code in and it just ran, uh, I'm not exaggerating. And, um, yeah, the, um, my software engineering days are, are long behind me. Uh, but, the acceleration, um, like the the uh, GitHub's uh, Copilot functionality, right, which is effectively, um, you know, a we use that. Our, our best engineers uh, are reporting, and we're seeing that it's doubling their output. I believe it. I 100% believe it. Um, and for for a not good engineer like me, I I think it's a 10x multiplier because uh, the amount of trial and error and debugging and like just learning by Googling Stack Overflow and tinkering. Um, like what I got done in that hackathon was would have been physically impossible uh, for me in my knowledge set, right? Uh, uh, w- without the help of ChatGPT, so that stuff is wild, yeah. And it is. Um, uh, if I was not doing crossbeam right now, I would probably be pouring myself into into that universe. What's interesting is that it's so um, widely usable and adopted that the it becomes difficult to create something that is not commoditizable, right? It almost becomes more about the fidelity of your training data set uh, and the proprietary access to data that you have to train the models as much. Well, as yeah, that's exactly it. Because if you output. use the open AI APIs, then you're just, you know, that's like the same problem. These e-commerce businesses that build on the Amazon uh, network have that, you know, all of a sudden Amazon decides they want to compete with your product and you're off the map. Like that's the same, yeah. same issue could happen here, I think. But uh one that I've been thinking about that's really interesting. I even put up a little one pager for it. It's called CRM Zombie. Basically, it's just like it indexes your CRM data and yeah. your Google Workspace data. And then it will uh, figure out all of the deals you've lost and the context of those lost deals and then create emails uh, to the prospects and then like do a drip sequence. It's all automated with GPT-3 uh emails and then once someone responds then it pops back into the salesperson's inbox and, and back into the crm but it's like uh you know bring your lost deals back from the dead uh so Dude, i've been what are you doing doing magento implementations that sounds like a business uh it's like a uh that's really cool i there's a i've actually been wondering if you if you watch right like intercom just a day or two ago announced a bunch of uh like gpt3 enabled ai generative like text responses within like intercom chatbots and like you know this stuff is showing up inside of uh uh basically any of these like b2b saas platforms that involve communication between customers uh and i'm sure you know, we both know uh, Rick Nucci over at Guru, right? You think about their business is like one of the first ones that comes to mind for me. These like internal knowledge base kind of battle card uh, uh, documents that like very often are translated into communications for CS or for sales. Like, yeah, we just uh, we just had drinks at Time the other day, and we were literally talking exactly about that. 
Yeah. Like, I feel like, uh, I don't know anything, you know, from the inside there, but I feel like, uh, there's some pretty cool stuff that they'd be situated well to do, but then it raises this question of like, is this, is this technology going to be something that becomes, um, a moat for incumbents who can implement it quickly on top of their existing network effects? Or is it actually a disruption point where like people can build completely new ideas about how to tackle these problems that disrupt the incumbents and, uh, I honestly don't know, but frankly, the the points I've seen put up on the board so far have been incumbents like entrenching themselves. Getting back to the point of like creating new stuff, very heavily commoditized. Uh, but if you have a proprietary data set or network effect inside of your business and you can layer this on top, it actually digs the moat deeper. Um, and within B2B, um, you know, I, I think people using this will have to use it in a way that fully disrupts an underlying paradigm in order to create a new business around it, as opposed to just like having an incrementally better, um, you know, uh, mousetrap effectively for delivering the same category of SaaS solution. Uh, so, I mean, look at uh, uh, Jasper. They're they're kind of like oh, the yeah. uh, they're they're, they're kind of like the leader uh, right now. I'd say printing money. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah, really, really. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting for businesses like that, right? It'll be interesting to see what the fate of it is in five years, right? Because it's like, doesn't seem uh, non-replicable, uh, uh, but I think they had a really awesome approach and were a couple of a uh, couple of quarters ahead of the pack on um, implementation and user interface and go-to-market and just like, um, you know, kind of where the the first in a gold rush, right, to actually strike gold and uh, seem to be doing a great job of uh, keeping that rolling. I mean, if I was them, I'd definitely be taking a secondary, but... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just, there's so much, yeah, they, they're probably kicking off so much cash to the bottom line. They could, uh, their their business uh, generates a secondary every quarter right now. Uh, uh, it's really, really exciting. Yeah, it's cool. Well, um, anything else you want to plug? Uh, anything with your businesses or uh, before we hop off here? No, I think, look, um, uh, Crossbeam, thank you. Anyone who's made it this far, uh, thank you for sticking with the the Crossbeam story. And like, I I geek out really easily on the data story in the background, right? But ultimately, the end users and the people that benefit from all of this wonky data stuff I've been talking about is uh, people who work in partnerships, in sales, in marketing, in product. Anybody where your job or the value proposition of your product is made stronger because of partnerships with other companies, right? Whether they sell or implement your software or it's a technology integration where you have a, you know, third-party hooks into other products or you pull data in from another place. Um, we all live in this modern, like ecosystem-driven economy. And we really are uh, you know, this foundational technology enabling this ecosystem-led growth. And uh it's free, by the way, to sign up and get on the platform and connect your data and connect with partners. We only charge you when you try to push it back into your CRM systems or, or like operationalize it in some way. So a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Brian described is, um, is all stuff that you can, you can experience right in the free product. So if you're not on Crossbeam yet, go sign up. If you are, you know, bring a friend, uh, and, uh, get them on there and, and show them how it works. I think we're still very much in the early days of, of unearthing the value story here. And, uh, we appreciate the whole, the whole Crossbeam community, uh, pushing it forward with us. Nice. Bob, uh, thanks for coming on and, uh, good catching up with you. Cool, as always. Been a pleasure. Did you clear your cash flow?